Today we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Uh, and so we're actually just going to come right out of the gate and read this text, because I think it'll help inform the whole direction that we're going today. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open to that, and I'll read it for us here. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever." You know, as I read this, I just, I just sense this tension that Jesus talks about when he calls us to be in the world and not of the world. Well, John kind of hints at this tension as well. I typically don't use illustrations like this, but uh, this one communicates where we're headed today in a, in a really powerful way. It's a 2005 interview uh, where 60 Minutes anchor Steve Croft interviewed Tom Brady when he was 27 years old after his third Super Bowl win. Now, I know some of you Falcons fans are going to be tempted to tune out right now, but I want to encourage you to repent uh, and, and check out uh, uh, this interview because it's, it's, uh, it's interesting because Croft is, is expecting to find a, a prideful uh, and beamingly confident young man. But what he stumbles across is a bottomless pit that no amount of success can fill in Brady's soul. Check it out. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I mean, it's, I think that's part of me trying to go out and experience other things. But there's a, I know, I love playing football and I love being the quarterback for this team. And, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find and different ways of expression, being around. I know what ultimately makes me happy are family and friends and positive relationships with, with great people. And I think I get more out of that than anything. Tom, we got the answer. We got the answer, Tom. I mean, how many of us have felt like that, though? Like, man, I've experienced some type of success, some type of pursuit that I've been after. I've achieved it and to get to the end uh, of, the, uh, of the rainbow and, and to find that you didn't get the pot of gold that you hoped, that it didn't give you what you thought it would give you. You know, John knows, the Apostle John knows this struggle well. You know, and this is why he says that the world and its desires are passing away. What could be worse than for the world and our desires to pass away and to take us down with them? That's why this message, this text that we're looking at today is so crucial to our joy in Christ and our eternal satisfaction. So here's where we're going today. The big idea is this. Only the expulsive power of a new affection can supplant the love of the world in our hearts. Let me say it one more time. 
Only the expulsive power of a new affection can supplant our love for this world. Because here's the deal. As Christians, we have to figure out how to relate to the world. We, we, cannot, uh, we cannot say that the world is just bad and it's just going to, to, to hell in a handbasket, so forget about the world. Because Jesus said he sent us into the world to live as light and salt. But we also cannot be consumed by the world. So what we have to do as Christians is to figure out how to relate to the world. Puritan pastor Thomas Watson once famously said this. He said, unless sin is bitter, Jesus can't be sweet. But I actually think the opposite way of saying that is more helpful for us, which is this. Until Jesus is sweet, sin can't be bitter. So let's dig into that. Unless Jesus is sweet, sin can't be bitter. So everything in us is hardwired to believe that we can overcome our temptations or our fleshly desires just by sheer willpower. Uh, You know, we we think that much of ourselves, if we're honest, right? We think that we can knife fight with the devil in our discipline and that we can win. And, and the Bible tells us something completely different, that there's no way we're going to win. There's no way that we're going to have victory except through the Spirit. But I think, I think what John leads us to today is to discover a more whole way of fighting against the battles of our flesh in this world. And it's, it's through the worship of Jesus, the sweetness of the worship of Jesus in our hearts. So John gives the command here in verse 2, 15. He says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So this is an imperative, which means this in the Scripture, that it must be obeyed. There's no option not to obey it. So if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you, meaning this. If you love the world, you're not a believer in Jesus. It's it's such a strong statement. The love of the world and the love of the Father are incompatible. So where can we possibly find power to not love the world? How can we possibly do that? I think our, our temptation is to weaken the command. It's, it's to say, uh, to, to make it attainable, to say, well, I don't really love the world. I mean, I could do without X. It's, it's really not that important to me. Um, so the next thing that John does after this is he explains really what the love of the world is. He talks about our, our flesh, the desires of our eyes, and the pride of life. He talks about those things. We're going to save that for the second point, but What I want to do in this first point is just kind of break open the struggle at a cosmic level, kind of a 50,000-foot level. What is going on in our battle and our struggle uh, to live in this world well? And uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 10 are the most helpful way to think about our transformed nature and how we live in the world. So let me read the first three verses for us real quick here. Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Get this, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived by the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So in other words, this is every person on the face, of planet, uh, the face of the planet at some stage in their life, born physically alive, yet spiritually dead. This is what Paul is saying here. You know, so how do we define the world is the first question, because he says that we're, uh, that, that we're, we're dead because we're following the course of the world and, and that we are following the prince of the power of the air, the enemy himself. So let's define what he means by world, because he, he can't possibly mean uh, world in the sense of, of God's people in the world. 
Because John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, the cosmos, the same, the same Greek word here, uh, that he gave himself up, right? So he has to mean something else by world here. So here's what I think he means, and, and many commentators agree with me on this. It, the world is the default value system of creation as it's divorced from a relationship with God. It's the default value system. So what, what, what creation values when it's not linked to God's design. So the world in John's sense is this. It's life without God. It's life without grace. It's life without eternal life. So the world is how people are hardwired to live if God didn't intervene. And why are we this way? You know, it's because we're so, we're so sinful. And you think about it, in creation, our first parents were created to be in this world and to, and to enjoy the world. To be, to, to, to be satisfied in God, but to enjoy his creation. But the book of Romans says what happened in the garden was that we exchanged the truth about God for a lie. In other words, we said, I'm going to worship creation over creator. And we've been doing that ever since then. Um, and, you, you know, you were, we were made to enjoy this world through a relationship with God. Not enjoy God through a relationship with the world. And I, th- I think that's the difference. This is why G.K. Chesterton once said this. He said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. So what's that mean? It means that every sinful proclivity of your heart, every time that you sin and your flesh acts out in a way that you're ashamed of, that you're actually searching for something more than you can find. That you're hitting at the edges of what God's design is for you. You, you know, you've been looking for deep and abiding satisfaction that only Jesus can secure through every miserable pursuit of your life. This is what he's saying here. And, and what Ephesians chapter 2 says is that there is a master manipulator, manipulator a, a puppeteer behind it all, and it's Satan himself. And that we live according, when we live according to the standards of the world, we're actually being followers of Satan, or to put it another way, disciples of the enemy. Think about that. That's actually what's happening when we're born into this world, that every single person on the face of the planet is born as a disciple of the enemy. And it's our hardwired nature because of sin. We are born prideful, selfish, arrogant, lustful in all our ways. And and ultimately, what that means for all of us is that, as, as Paul writes, that we are children of wrath, meaning that, 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 that our destructive nature that we've gotten ourselves into deserves to be destroyed by God. And that's heavy, but if you don't understand how flesh and temptation works, you'll, you'll live your life thinking that the worst thing is outside of you instead of inside of you. You'll live your life thinking this type of a relationship that, that, if, I could just get that if I could just get that temptation out of my life, if I could just get that person or that thing out of my life, then my life would be better. Only to find your heart stumbling on another way to try to be satisfied that has just a different mask on it. So that's the danger, and that's why we have to understand the nature of the struggle that we're in. We, we worship stuff in this world and the ways of this world and not the designer of this world. And we can know that we're doing this because the things of this world become idols. And we, we, the only way that we overcome anything in our way of, of pursuits of this, well, let me say that a different way. What we'll do when we're on the chase, when we're on the hunt for whatever our heart's after is, is there's nothing that can stop us from going after it. And if you're anything like me, you've been in that place before. And that's because your nature has been overcome by evil. 
But the, the, the promise is that God makes us alive together with Christ. That, that he transforms us from being disciples of our enemy to disciples of the one who can actually do something about our struggle. And this is, this is why Ephesians 2, 4 through 10 are so important to read after the first three verses. Let me read it for you. But God, being rich in mercy, and that's, that's a big but God. You need to circle that. Because anytime you see that, uh, it's good news. But God, even though we were children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy and because of the great love which he has loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, even while we were stuck in our flesh, in our sin, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. After all, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So, so this is the great news. And here's what it is, is that we cannot make ourselves alive to God's ways. That there is not a... There is not a there is not enough self-control that we could possibly have. There's not enough uh, uh, self-discipline that we could have to make us alive to God's ways. God has to make us alive to his design. That's what Paul is saying here. That, that uh, we can't clean ourselves up enough with Bible verses and church attendance and good deeds because we're dead. And the last time I checked, dead people can't do anything. And so Jesus has to raise us up. And God sends Jesus to be like us, to be in the flesh like me and you, in the struggle. The book of Hebrews said there's, there's nothing that, that we have struggled with that Jesus hasn't struggled with. And so what that means is that he can speak into our struggle because he struggled with the same things. So God sends Jesus to this dead, sin-dominated world, and then Jesus shows up and he brings enough life with him for the entire world. That, that's what the promise is here. He brings enough life with him to give us life, to share it with us. And so when you think about the terrible things that your life has produced, and, and you, you feel it in your bones what I'm talking about here, the things you want no one to know about you, here's my question. When you think about that, is there a but God in there? Because if you're a Christian, if there's no but God in there, you're not seeing it the way that Jesus sees it. You're not seeing it in God's design. Because that's the offer of the gospel, that your life in this world doesn't have to be the end of the story. Jesus has come and he's made us alive. And God is pouring out his kindness to us in grace. And by doing so, he's declawed our enemy. He's muzzled the accuser of the brethren. He's dethroned the father of lies. That's what he's done in Jesus. And so the, the, the flesh or our unredeemed nature, which comes alive to the taunting ability of our enemy, has no power over us anymore. And we begin to see that this pursuit of satisfaction is not the biggest problem that we have. The pursuit of satisfaction is actually a sign of God's grace, that, that you were made for something more. Jonathan Edwards writes about this. I want to read a quote out of a sermon that he wrote. He was not a man of uh, few words, so it's a, a, a stitched together quote. Uh, here's what he says. God has made man of exceeding great happiness. In other words, he's made us to be super happy, church. 
To create man with a capacity which God never intended to fill would have been to have created a large capacity when there was need of but a small one. And then he says this about us. They, we, are capable of knowing much of him, of which is a vast and unspeakable delight. So what he's saying here is that those uncontrollable desires that you have, that they're actually from God. They're just targeted by the enemy instead of God. Your aim, the trajectory is trying to fill, like Tom Brady was saying, this bottomless pit of desire that lives inside of us that's seeking for delight. It's to look for it in all the wrong places. So desire is not the problem. It's the object of desire that has to be channeled. So what we're going to talk about today is about, as Christians, relating to the world that God's called us to live in as salt and light in a different way, in a redeemed way, in a way that is more informed by Jesus than the enemy, that's more informed by the spirit than the flesh. That's where we're headed today. And what we'll begin to see is that the things of this world, when they take their rightful place in our hearts, when they take their rightful place in our lives, become a great source of joy for us because we enjoy the world through Jesus instead of trying to find Jesus through the world. That's the difference here. So that's the big picture of where we're headed today and and what God has done about the big picture. Now let's delve into where John takes us in talking about the struggle of desire in this world. He he speaks of three different things. And and the way that I frame this is is that the Holy Spirit actually gives us power to take off the mask of our worldly pursuits, to see them for what they are. And so in each of the points that we look at, um, I, I talk about the desire, but I also talk about how the Spirit transforms the desire. So 1 John 2.16 is is where this point is uh, embedded. For all that is in the world, in other words, here's the pursuit of the world when we're living in the world, divorced from God's ways. It, it, It looks like this. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. So let's look at what these three pursuits of the world look like in the human heart. First one is this, the desires of the flesh, and they must be supplanted by the filling of the Holy Spirit. They must be replaced by the filling of the Holy Spirit. So don't try to subdue desire, but replace it with what Jesus has for us. So our flesh in in our unredeemed nature um, is 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 a pursuit of satisfaction on our own. So doing life in the flesh are those moments when you do not consider God and his design in your pursuit of satisfaction. So you say, what, what feels good to me, what feels right to me, what's enjoyable to me is more important than God's design for me. And so, so you pursue it. But, but the way that the Spirit channels that is we pursue Jesus and then find enjoyment through him in the things of the world. And so it's, it's, the flesh is like this. It's chasing things and experiences that you can see, taste, touch, and feel to find satisfaction. It's when you might buy something to make yourself feel good. It's when you chase a relationship that's outside of the, the bounds of God's design, whether that's outside of your marriage or someone that's not a believer. It's, it's, it could be when someone who's not your spouse or dating an unbeliever or just relating to people without Jesus standing in between you and them. It could be any of those things. It could do with food, drink, sex, rest, leisure, entertainment, workaholism, whatever makes you feel good. Whatever is therapeutic to your soul, divorced from God's design. Our flesh is multifaceted. It's creative. In fact, the book of Romans says that we have been creating ways of sinning since sin entered the world. So you fill in the blank for you. 
But what I don't want you to do is just, because I haven't described your particular vice, you just, you just write this off because we all struggle with the flesh. John is saying that pursuing these types of vices without Jesus is like spiritual dumpster diving, trying to find treasure in the county dump. Think about that. They were, they were trying to find treasure in the middle of a dump. I could go deeper here, but I, but I think, you know, we should keep this PG today. But I want you to do yourself a favor and just write this down as a question to ask yourself this week, okay? And it's this, where do I go dumpster diving in my flesh? Write it down and ask yourself that. And make sure you put it in that spot in your journal where you're actually going to look at it, not the one you're just going to tuck in there and hide away. Because if you don't know where your tendencies in the flesh are, how are you ever going to see the Spirit show up and fulfill those desires? Romans 8 talks about the struggle between the flesh and the Spirit and what Jesus has actually done for us in this. So I want to read just a few verses from Romans 8 here that help us inform that. For God has done, Romans 8, 3, for God has done what the law, which is weakened by the flesh, could not do. He sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, and for sinners. And what he did was he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, he showed it for what it was, all right? He, 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 showed, he showed it that it, you know, we're pursuing satisfaction at the county dump. That's what he showed us. And, but he did this so that the righteous requirement of the law could be fulfilled in us, that we could finally be satisfied. And we're those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit because of God's grace now. And for those who will live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, the, the carnal mind of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So he talks about the struggle. And the biggest thing that he tells us to do here is to have a change of mind in what we're fixating our minds on. That when we, when we fixate our mind on the things of the Spirit and what Jesus has actually done for us, then the things of the world take their rightful place. And so what we do is we take our flesh off the, we take the oxygen mask off our flesh is what we're doing when we do this. But you need to understand that flesh is your default pursuit for satisfaction. So sanctification or God making you more and more into his image the image of Jesus as you, as you journey along in life is a, is a journey of continuing to, to, to uproot the flesh that we see. You're going to continue to see it come out as you walk with God. But God's design in the Spirit is that we would be, more, or we'd be less and less satisfied by what we find in our pursuits of the flesh. That we'd, we'd just be like Brady, be like, man, this is, there's got to be more to life than this. Like when we see our flesh as those who walk in the Spirit... How beautiful that would be for us to say that more and more as we mature. The flesh is like death, John says. It, if we stay in the flesh, the world will pass away and it will take our souls with it. But that's not God's design for us. God gave us a huge capacity for desire and satisfaction because we were made to be filled with the Spirit, which has a, lim which has a limitless ability to fill us. So instead of the fleshly dumpster diving, how might God's Spirit feel the desires of your heart in a lasting way this week? Just think about that as you think about the pursuit of your flesh. The second thing he says is the desires of the eyes. And, and here's, here's what I think Jesus does for the believer. The desires of the eyes are supplanted by the beauty of the heart. 
So instead of just looking for the outward appearance of what seems good, we actually look at the heart and what is good. The pursuit of the world through flesh is what you can see, taste, and touch and experience, but the desires of the eyes is different. It's more about an appearance than an experience. It's more about posturing yourself. Um, It's when we give our lives to look better than we are. It's when we give our lives to cover up our sin. It's when we give our lives for the airbrushed appearance that this world is really satisfying, that it's really doing something for my soul. But something is happening on the inside when we live that way. When we live for the desires of the eyes, what looks good to the world. Jesus had a group of Pharisees that he talked to about it. And he told them that their souls were rotting. Here's what Jesus said to that group of Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones, her graveyard. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So, So sit in that image. When our lives are about posturing for the world to get their approval, what's, what's really happening is that we look like this beautiful stone image, this work of art that's full of rotten corpses. Like that's what we're trying to be satisfied with. Do you feel like this today? I mean, are you tired of running the social media rat race? Are you tired of playing the fraud Are you exhausted from covering up your tracks? Good. Because that's God's grace. I mean, how could a loving God possibly allow you to be fulfilled with posturing yourself with this pretend airbrush life that you're perfect? That's God's grace in our lives. You know, I I think about, when I think about the the desires of the eyes and, and the pursuit of the heart, I always think about Samuel when he anointed David as king. And the instruction that the Lord gave to Samuel, the prophet, who would anoint the next king, what he said to be looking for. I think it's helpful for us in how we think about ourselves, how God thinks about us, and how we live in community with others as his church. So David was going to be the next king, but he was not the picture of the next king. Uh, David was least of his brothers. He really wasn't even part of the family. He was damaged goods. He, was, he didn't have the right job. He didn't have the right call. Nobody thought David was worth anything except the Lord. Here's what, here's what he says. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance. You're going to miss it if you look at his appearance or on the height of his stature. Because I've rejected him. I've rejected those that look pleasing to the eyes. Or do not look at his career, his boasting social media footprint, his bank account balance, his popularity in Bethlehem. Don't look at those things, because if you look at those things, you're going to miss the heart. If it's just about a desire of the eyes, you're going to miss the thing that makes people beautiful, which is the heart. And he says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. Our flesh, our unredeemed nature, looks at the outward appearance. It's all that we can see. But the Lord and those who are filled with the Lord look at the heart. 
So here's how the Spirit changes us. Here's how he transforms the desires of the eyes as we think about how we relate to the world. The Spirit changes us from trying to create beauty out of our sin to seeing beauty through sin in others because of grace. That's what the Spirit does, is that we no longer just cut ourselves and others off because we don't look the part on the outside. But we're able to see beauty through sin because of grace, because that is exactly what Jesus did for each and every one of us. If he were to stop, if he, if he were to stop loving us because of what our lives look like on the outside, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have made it into this atmosphere, right? That's how, that's how bad our, our sin reeks. But he, he loves us because he loves us. And so the question I want you to ask about the desires of the eyes as you think about your own worldly pursuits is this. Where is the, airbr- the airbrush tendency of your heart? Where are you trying to make yourself look better than you are? Where are you terrified of being found out as a fraud? Because that's where you're posturing, and the Spirit needs to break into that part of your soul, that part of your life. The third thing that John writes is the pride of life. And, and I think that, that Jesus transforms us because instead of the pride of life, it's supplanted by the glory of humility, that we see that humility is actually beautiful. Because prideful boasting is what the world thinks is beautiful, right? But there's glory in humility. So the pursuit of worldliness in us is the desires of the flesh, it's the desires of the eyes. But John tells us that really that the pride of life is the oxygen mask for our idolatry, where everything else is wrapped up in it. Pride is what keeps our un redeemed desires alive. So what is the pride of life? It's thinking about yourself as the center of the world. Of course, no one thinks they do this, right? Amen. Right? No one thinks they do that. But we all do. Our pride is what keeps our flesh alive. There's there's no limit to the extent of collateral damage that can occur when people are living in pride. And it's thinking of yourself and exalting yourself. Life is about you. You don't consider others. And without the Holy Spirit, church, this is the only way we can afford to live. So never do I want a Christian at New City Church to judge someone who lives in our community because life is all about them. Because without the Spirit of God, your life is only about you too. It's the only way that you can afford to give up your pride and to live in humility is when your desires are satisfied and secured in Jesus. Jesus turns it inside out, Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, or the pride of life, we could say, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. So so there's the command. That's like the same thing John said, right? Don't love the world or anything in it. Don't love the world's ways or anything in the world. But how are we going to do that? Well, he shows us in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So there's the test, right? Verse 5, here's the power. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, in other words, had a reason to boast, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count or consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, pursuit of righteous pride, it, it, uh, it, it was underneath his desire to save the world through humility. So he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. So, so how do you know when the Spirit is filling the bottomless pit of our lustful souls? 
He says it's pretty easy. Are other people actually more significant to you in that moment? It's a test. Whenever you get angry and anxious and your flesh is showing itself, the question is, who's the most important person in the room? And if the most important person in the room is you, the oxygen mask on your flesh is still there. It's still giving life to the pride of life, the, the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh. Because the, what the Holy Spirit does is it turns uh, the world's worldview upside down in us. That we become, as we become disciples of Jesus, life is no longer about us. That it's about helping others flourish and thrive in the kingdom of God. So are other people actually more significant in my pursuit of satisfaction? Or are they just pawns in my pursuit of satisfaction myself? So how do we take the oxygen mask off? How do we unplug the machine? We have to consider others better than ourselves. And we only do this by seeing that Jesus did this for us all along. And because Jesus is everything, Billy can be anonymous, right? It's exactly what can happen. So we've looked at the big picture, the struggle. We've looked at the power of the flesh and its unredeemed nature and how the spirit might transform that. But how do we actually change? It's one thing to know, it's another thing to experience the transformation that God has for us. So that's where I want to land the plane here. And here's what I think. Only the worship of someone greater can transform our desires. Here's what uh, John says in verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires. So he's reiterating what we've talked about. But then there's another but. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does what God's design is, whoever lives in God's way, which is to be found in Jesus, abides forever. You remain forever. The world doesn't overcome you. You overcome the world even though you're in the world. So our hearts have to be transformed and trained to do God's will. That's it. It's pretty easy, right? I mean, no problem. Phil's got that. But how do we change? I think we got two options on how we change. The first one is this, moralistic willpower. So this is, I think this is fighting the flesh the world's way. This is when you buckle down on your moralistic ability to change. Or in other words, you do all the right things, and people who don't do the right things, they don't have a part of your life anymore. You cut all the right things out of your life, so everything should be good, right? Why is my heart still long for, for other things? Why is my, as John Calvin said, why is my heart like an idol factory? It just keeps creating. It just keeps pumping new idols out. I, I kill them, I, I destroy them, and another one pops up the next day. It's like spiritual whack-a-mole. And I think we get that experience as we, as we fight the flesh in the world's way. But I think it's so important for us to remember, you know, that, that it's not about our own ability to change ourselves because we'll never, we'll never be able to do that. I, you know, I can remember when I, was, when I was 17 driving down Highway 127 in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, and, man, I was a new believer and I was jacked up in the Lord and took all my gangster hip-hop CDs and threw them out the window and... Uh, I was thinking that those ideas and those words would no longer be a part of my life, but then I just had to borrow my friend's CDs because they were still there, right? Because my heart wasn't changed. Just because you try to change the exterior and position and posture yourself, it doesn't change your heart. Only the Spirit can do that. Thomas Chalmers talks about this in, in a sermon that he preached called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's where I got the idea for our big idea today, and this quote is just so good. He says this, the love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. In other words, you can laugh at the devil all day long. You can 
make fun of his ways, but just seeing that his ways are worthless and not life-giving doesn't keep you from pursuing them. That's humbling, isn't it? To think that, oh, just because I know something doesn't mean my heart's transformed. And this is the danger of the Christian life, right? We know a lot of things. And so because we know those things, we think, gosh, I can't still experience that struggle. And so what we do is we begin to conceal. We begin to hide. Our fraudulent lives actually become more and more and more robust if we don't understand this about our flesh. So we, we can't just say, oh, the world's worthless, you know, can't wait to go be with Jesus. It's not going to change your heart, he says. But may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself. Chalmers says, great, you want to change? That's awesome. We all want to change. But the only way you can change is through worship of something greater. Because there's not enough willpower on the planet to satiate your desire. There's not enough age to mature you enough to change your heart. None of that. The worst thing is inside of us, not outside of us. And that's what Jesus came to transform. This is why Jesus was so drawn to people whose lives were a mess. Because they couldn't keep up with the, with the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. They just couldn't. Their hearts were primed for transformation. This is why the place of brokenness is the most beautiful place for us. And it's the best soil for transformation. So what does worship of the worthy one look like? How does Jesus transform us? Well, God offers you and me assurance in Jesus that is beyond the reach of the enemy's domain. So the the enemy can thwart our security in Christ so long as it's up to us to stay in Christ. So if in your mind it is up to you to stay in Jesus, the enemy can mess with that all day long because it's your flesh that's empowering things, not the spirit. But he cannot steal the gift of grace because the world's ways have no category for grace. In other words, the, en- the enemy's domain is this world, and it's, it's this world's ways. Grace is not the way of the world. So the enemy cannot, he has no power over grace. It's not in his dominion. So his job, his sole job is to keep you out of grace, to keep you focused on yourself, on your appearance, all of those things. Because when he can keep you there, he can keep you in bondage. So how does worship practically feel when we're faced with desire? God gave the prophet Isaiah a vision for this in Isaiah chapter 55. He says this, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. In other words, come and experience grace. You've got nothing to offer? Fantastic, I've got everything for you. That's, what, that's the offer of Jesus to us. But then he, he reminds Isaiah of the, of, the, uh, of the tension that we feel in this world. He says, why do you spend your money on that which isn't bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich, rich food. In other words, he doesn't say, Isaiah, if y'all would just qu- put yourself on a diet and quit getting so hungry, everything would be fine. Y'all wouldn't be in, in bondage, right? No, he says, spend your money on the good food. And oh, by the way, your bank account's full because of grace. So th- that's the challenge for us. 
He's describing the condition of our hearts. That it's more about the object of our worship than anything else. To, ch- to change, you know, we, we have this desire to change, but we don't have the ability to make it happen. So when we come to the waters and we're panting in thirst, we're seeking something that can get us off of this hamster wheel, get us to our next fix, so we can look within ourselves to fix ourselves. It's the struggle. We're, we're looking for the next can of fix-a-flat to keep us on the road, right, of our fleshly pursuits. And he says, you've got to stop playing the game. If you just stop, if you just stop playing the game for a moment, long enough to see that grace sustains you, then maybe you'll spend your desires on that. Maybe instead of buckling down, trying to get your flesh in order, you just need to stop and worship. You just need to be stunned by Jesus. You just need to be in awe of who he is for us. And maybe you'll unplug your flesh as that happens. Because, church, Jesus is not going to take you out of the world until he returns or until you go to be with him. The world's not the problem. Our hearts are the problem. So what Jesus prayed for you. This is John 17. He prayed this for you. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That's his heart for us. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask to take them out of the world. Okay, let me say that again. Jesus did not pray to take you out of the world. Jesus did not pray to keep you from the desires you know, that surround us in this world. But he, but he pray, prayed to keep us from the evil one. He, prayed, he, he didn't pray that we wouldn't be tempted, but he prayed that we'd be kept from the dominion of the, of the enemy. And it's, it's for this reason, because in our new hearts that we talked about in Ephesians 2, we're no longer of this world, because Jesus is not of this world. He created this world. So he prays that we would be sanctified in the truth because his word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, he prays, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus has sent you into the world as those who no longer are dominated by the world's ways. The world's ways of satisfaction. So church, as we find our satisfaction in Christ and we sit and we rest in who he is, I think we'll experience more and more victory over the dominating pursuit of the flesh in our hearts. And that's my prayer for you this week. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, that you change us, Lord. That you do such a work in us. Not a work that takes us out of this world. Not a work that Not a work that tells us to buckle down on our flesh more and to get it in line. Even though there's a place for that at times. But a work of gazing at your beauty, Lord. I pray that you'd do that. Lord, I pray that you'd give us power this week as we struggle. And we think about... We think about the, the things that have kept us in misery and in pain. And we give those to you. And we ask for forgiveness, Lord. Lord, we need your blood to cover us. We need your spirit to empower us. Lord, we need hope. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us that today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.